Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Cape Town. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Hannah Mazel. I'm Ryan Ham. I'm Christian Blood. And we are a superhero podcast about superhero things. This week, we're going to be talking about Catwoman. But before we get into that, we are going to talk a little bit about some of the news of the week. I guess we've also been trying to open by talking about each other's lives a little bit. And I would do such a bad job because I like I think about the news that I want to bring, but I never actually think about you guys and how you're how you doing, guys. How's everybody on a scale of one to ten? Oh, I'm super. I'm super good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm doing. I'm doing really well. Uh, my wife and I have just like moved into to a house within the last two months, and so we've just been doing a ton of work on that. So like, I'm feeling very domestic and like weathering all the stress that comes with being a homeowner now. Oh yeah. I helped you move in, Chris, and I know you've got like a big upstairs and a big downstairs. Which of the two? locations are you actually recording in? I am upstairs in my wife's office now. So if I'm a little echoey, it's because we actually have no furniture upstairs. Because <laughs> we've, like, we've possibly lived in like really small uh, rentals and we've had enough furniture to fill those out. And we wanted to do the downstairs as an Airbnb. And so we put all of our furniture down there. So literally like the only thing that's upstairs in our house right now is uh, our bed in our bedroom, uh, my wife's desk in her office, and then we have, uh, and then we have a kitchen with four chairs, and that's it. And we've like tried to host like seventeen different times, and we're like, oh wait, we like we have nowhere for people to come. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. But, I mean, honestly, like we're we're really loving it, and the Airbnb is all set and ready to go. Um, I'll start promoting it on the show as soon as the listings <laughs> up for anybody who wants to like, come. Um, but yeah, no, like that's been like, I feel like the biggest life, uh, life things going on. Um, yeah. You do sound like a little echoey and I think we're just going to lean into it as a show and yeah. cast you as like a kind of a heavenly specter. <laughs> <laughs> or we just like think Chris is, uh, in a warehouse somewhere and has <laughs> been kidnapped and being in his recording against his will. I'll actually, I'll see what I can do about the echo. But as soon as you said that, uh, we're like in Nashville right now. And we have this like tremendous uh, thunderstorm that's coming through. So as you said that of me like being this like villainous character, lightning struck, and so thunder was like rolling <laughs> in the background. Uh, but yeah, you have a window. If there's one in the the like dingy warehouse you're in, you can like open it up, and maybe we can hear the lightning to add. Ooh, true. Would, maybe this is going to be kind of like our first noir-ish episode where we could talk in like <laughs> like very vaguely about Catwoman and let people fill in between the blanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> as soon as we started recording, I knew it was no good. <laughs> <laughs> when she walked into my office, she was all cat. Cat would be Catwoman would be a good for oh we're getting ahead of ourselves. We can't even get to Catwoman yet. I feel like after a, like a burst of superhero news over the past few weeks, there hasn't been quiet as much in the news over the like it's been a little all been quiet another great noir like it's a sign that something big is going to drop right as we're talking about this probably first thing i wrote in my notes about news <laughs> is that the cw is renewing all of our favorite question mark shows <laughs> but arrow the flash legends of tomorrow supergirl they're all coming back for another round arrows and it's like 25th season or so but it feels like 20 because <laughs> they're each 40 episodes long and each episode is an hour so yeah it does that's a respectable amount of time for a for any superhero show i feel like as long as they keep having oliver queen do like crossfit exercises <laughs> like they're gonna go to like season 15 i think at this point Okay, I'm actually super inspired by those shows. Like I watch it and I'm like, okay, I need to get back into the gym. It's time. Like I need to get back into my whatever that like salmon ladder thing that he does, the sort of like real like American Ninja Warrior thing. I'm the only one who watches the show. I know what I'm talking about. It's a great <laughs> exercise. But yes, it's impressive. That was the type for honesty. Who actually watches the CW superhero shows? Not me. I know that Chris and I did at one point. I think we both stopped, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like it's it's baffling to me that we are going on season seven of Arrow, season five of Flash, Legend of Legends of Tomorrow will be going on its fourth season next year. That's crazy. Which is like, yeah, I never even like dip my toes in those waters. Um, so yeah, like it, it's it's truly it's crazy to me that these uh, shows are even still existing. And I and I think that, like they mainly like 
they fell off for me, I guess, because like more so than comic books, you know, I feel like you know the story that they're going to tell and that they're never, I feel like this is a criticism that like MC, like Marvel movies are getting that there are no lasting consequences or, um, yeah. Yeah. but I, I feel that tenfold uh, with the CW shows where uh, there never really seems to be like super high stakes involved, at least when I was watching. And so it just got really tiresome because I, I kind of knew what to anticipate kind of at the end of the day. And there was no like unique story angle to any of the episodes. I think it's weird. And it's interesting that you contrast them with comics in that way. Cause it's like, you know, comics there's change over all the time and who runs them. Um, so it's yeah. like, it's very rare for there to be a run, you know, longer than what do you, what, like four or five years, maybe max mm-hmm. with one writer yeah. and artist combination. Yeah. And like, Chris, you've even talked about like Dan slot was on Spider-Man forever. And that was part of the thing yeah. that you got really tired yeah. of that, like everything kind of just felt stale. So maybe like, maybe that's how the CW shows could, you know, gain back some of their momentum is just by doing complete changeover of creative teams periodically. I, I'm going to, I guess, kind of like come out on this one and say that I think Legends of Tomorrow is a great show. Not just great, not just CW great, but great by any... On the most recent episode of Legends of Tomorrow, a talking gorilla grad, a talking gorilla went back in time to try to kill a young Barack Obama while he was still in college. And he bursts into Barack Obama, young Barack Obama's dorm room and says, Barack Obama, it'll be a pleasure to kill you. That's great television. And <laughs> you can't get that on any other show. It's like. A- was it revealed that Gorilla Grodd was actually Tucker Carlson? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it's a really weird show. And it's, I only like watch it like if my wife's out of town and I've got nothing to do except for a frozen pizza, then I just pull up Legends of Tomorrow and I'll watch four or five episodes in a row and literally anything could happen on that show nothing about it is stale it's a bunch of dcc listers anyone else know that tyler watched the show because i feel like he's been like hiding this from everyone yeah i had no idea oh like i see the guy at least once or twice a week and i've never known this about him so <laughs> i don't tell a lot of people but i feel say you know we're still a young podcast the listener base isn't huge yet i don't think this is going to ruin any like future run for political office I think the Arrow has gotten a little stale. I think I don't really watch The Flash or Supergirl, I'm afraid. But Legends of Tomorrow, it's it's I feel like it's what the Justice League movie should have been. It's what the Justice League movie should have been. Hmm. It's campy and weird and super funny and they're not afraid to let their comic book freak flag fly just full mast, just like a beam of light over the whole over the future, the past. A talking gorilla tries to kidnap young Barack Obama, guys. I don't know how how what kind of cell do you want? <laughs> I feel like you're just like killing our credibility as like these right. podcasts right. or sorry as these comic book commentators. Let's, let's move on to Legion then. I guess that would be that we can bring back bring back a little respectability because Legion start. I think we're actually missing it right now. Legion comes back on tonight, right? Yeah, I think it starts in ten minutes. Oh, we better hurry, better wrap this up. Sorry, then. guys. <laughs> <laughs> let's see. I'm caught up on it. Ryan, you're caught up on it. Hannah, do you guys watch it? Yep. Yep. Chris is the only one who's left out in the cold tonight. Come on, Chris. I know. It's it's honestly just, it's not the show that I, that's at like at the top of my mind when I'm like, oh, I'm eating chips in bed right now. Like, what do I want to watch? Like, it's not that show. Okay, wait. Why are you eating chips? (laughs) Okay. Okay. It's crumbs everywhere. So this is actually a new development in my house is, uh, I absolutely hate like eating food in bed, but for some reason over the last two weeks, we have like eaten 17 meals in bed. Oh, um, you're homeowners. Probably so is, you're homeowners. Yeah, yeah, right? It's easy. No, but I've, I've always been like no, no chips, no, like no food in bed. And then last night I found myself like just scrolling through Netflix, like deciding to rewatch an episode of new girl for the 17th time <laughs> and eating ruffles. <laughs> <laughs> This has really gone to a dark place. You're trapped in a warehouse <laughs> reporting on eating ruffles and watching New Girl. That all sounds pretty good to me. I don't know. I feel like Chris is in a pretty yeah. good spot right now. Yeah. And Tyler, Tyler's home eating frozen peach and watching Legends of Tomorrow. Like, I don't know what's going on in Nashville, but it doesn't sound good. And apparently the apocalypse is happening right now. So. It is actually funny but to like think about those two things out of context. It's like we, we're both married 30-year-old men. 
but we are living the life of oh, the most this, extreme bachelors in the world. This, this is this is what seven-year-old Tyler knew that thirty-year-old Tyler was going to be doing was just kicking back in bed, <laughs> watching superhero TV shows with a frozen pizza. Mm, Thirty. The fact that I'm married was a significant step up from my like young imagination. <laughs> for you guys who have seen Legion, so everybody except for Chris, what <laughs> what do you think is the? How would you sell the show to somebody who hasn't seen it? Oh man. Oh in a few words i feel like it's it's um ryan <laughs> honestly and this i hope this doesn't sound like a cop-out but it would honestly totally depend on who i was trying to persuade sure. to watch it sure. um because it's like it's a pretty weird show so depending on who it was i would either tell them it's by the guy who does fargo and so you kind of know what you're getting into um but I mean, I guess in general, you could say it's a superhero show about mental illness that's going to make your brain hurt for two episodes and then you're going to love it. Yeah, it's a long, Perfect. it's a long on ramp for this show. I do feel like it takes, it takes, you really have to acclimate yourself to the world because it's not, there's no analog. There's no other show that's like it. You can be like, oh, I'm familiar with the world they're creating here. It's very... Atlanta would be honestly the closest thing as a, another show that really just makes its own rules and everybody in the show seems to already understand them. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's just really good. And I, I guess I would say if you're familiar at all with the Legion comic book that came out, maybe like, I don't know, six, seven years ago. Um, it does feel a little bit like that. Um, it's where you're never quite exactly sure what's happening or what's in someone's head. And it's like very surreal and has these moments of really dark humor and, um so if, yeah if you if you're familiar with that and it's really good and it's on marvel unlimited you should check it out um the show will be right in your wheelhouse the show also features what i think is the best performance from aubrey plaza that we've got i'm excited about a lot going back into it but i'm really excited to see where they take her character because almost nothing would surprise me there's really there's nothing else quite like her on tv let alone the show but her in particular i don't even know i, I don't quite know how i describe the character i don't even whether she's a, she's real or not, or a good guy or a bad guy, but it, calling it a superhero show is almost, it doesn't quite work because it doesn't really feel like a, yeah, it feels like a show about mental health that features some dance sequences. And, <laughs> and also the guy from Flight and of the, the Concords. And the guy from Flight of the Concords. And Jermaine from Flight of the Concords. Yeah. Um, so another piece of news. Okay, this I feel like was sort of inevitable, but and, and I'm not even sure we should be talking about this movie because it just seems to suck the oxygen out of the room whenever it comes up. But the Venom movie is still happening. It has a dynamite cast, which is all the more baffling that I'm not like actually all that interested in it. But apparently Woody Harrelson is going to be playing Carnage in it. Carnage being like the even more extreme, gritty, badass version of Venom from the comic books. I'm still not 100% sure this movie is real. Or is actually going to happen. I'm definitely think it's weird that we have an actual trailer and still no sign of Venom in it. But Woody Harrelson, Tom Hardy, Riz Ahmed, on paper it sounds great. It's just nothing about me is actually intrigued by it. And I can't figure out what it needs, what it would need for me to actually be like, oh, cool, a Venom movie's coming out. A plot. I think it would need yeah. <laughs> I think it I think it actually needs uh, confirmation that Spider Man is a part of it. Like we have no, like they're not leaning into that at all. And Venom isn't Venom without Spider-Man. So it just doesn't, it seems very disjointed from like what we know. And I'm fine with, I'm fine with movies taking like their own direction, but this just seems, I, th I mean, we've talked about it on the show before. Like it just feels so disjointed. Uh, like how do, how do you get from point A to point B? And I'm willing, like, I like all the actors that are involved, so I'm willing to go along with it. But uh, I'm, I'm with you. I don't really, I don't really anticipate this that much. Somebody else said today, and I think it's true. It feels like a superhero movie from like 2001, back when studios weren't sure people wanted us. People liked superheroes, so they had to kind of pretend that it wasn't really a superhero movie because we have it has everything it needs to be solid, except for a plot or any sort of connection to a larger extremely successful superhero universe that it seems like it would be there for the taking if they wanted it i don't know venom starring woody starring tom hardy and woody harrelson coming to theaters in november i want to say i think october i mean it really does feel like sony's just trying to make money i mean which like obviously all these studios are but like 
even more so here, it's like they're scrambling to figure out what properties still belong to them. Um, and like how they could possibly make make a little bit of cash out of it. Um, yeah, it kind of reminds me of the of the boom like right after the first Spider Man came out, and they like rushed all this stuff into production. So like, do you remember in the span of like a year, we had Daredevil, and then there was also that Green. Oh Hornet yeah, with movie, Seth Rogen. Uh, yeah. With, yeah, with Seth Rogen, and then um, and then we had the Electro movie, and then Catwoman was in there too, and it's just like what like yeah spider-man made a lot of money but like calm down <laughs> like we can hold up we can wait a little bit don't forget about hulk oh oh yeah that's oh, right. yeah the first hulk movie the ed norton yeah uh, with no eric so easy to forget i apologize another movie that came out of that time that's actually still kind of go like the franchise is technically still in existence is the x-men movies which from a certain perspective is the longest running superhero franchise out there, but it's, it was like rebooted. And then the reboot turned out to be actually part of the same universe and had, has had some really great entries and some really bad ones. And now they're trying to make two more, at least there's new mutants and there is uh, the Phoenix movie. Yeah. Dark Phoenix Phoenix, movie, both of which just got another substantial delay. So what do you guys think? What, what needs to happen with these X movies? Uh, <laughs> I, I think this, I honestly think the same thing with the Venom movie, right? Like the, you know, when Marvel had to sell off their rights to these characters, uh, to save themselves from bankruptcy, like it, again, it's like in retrospect, it's what they needed to survive then. But now like the, the, these movies could be so much, uh, so much richer if they were actually involved in this like greater idea. And I think that they're just scrambling to tell, uh, tell these stories that like really don't that they really aren't captivating. They're nothing that I anticipate anymore. Um, and I and I hate to be like a no. naysayer like on these two movies back to back, but I like I really do. I really don't. They don't bring like the quality that you know we want to that we kind of expect uh, here. And um, so yeah, I, I think that I think that that's one thing that's missing. I like I feel like both of these movies will end up being movie pass movies for me. <laughs> like they're nothing, yeah. they're not anything that I'm going to like anticipate buying tickets ahead of time on. Like um, so, yeah, they just don't captivate me the way that you know they uh, they once did. And maybe that goes back to like something that Ryan and Hannah have talked about of their superhero fatigue of like. Maybe like while I was like very like shocked that they experienced that in this respect, I definitely get it because like, I'm just kind of like, what are they, we've already gone down the like a version of the Phoenix story once. So like, you know, what are they going to tell there? We've already seen the world ending several times just within the X-Men universe. What story are they going to tell there? Like, how can they really like capture, uh, capture what makes the politics of X-Men uh, great and uh, start putting them in films. Which is really interesting because between First Class, Days of Future Past, Logan, and Deadpool, these movies have had some very big recent successes. Like you would think there would be some sort of gas left in the tank in terms of energy because I loved Logan. I wasn't quite as on board with Deadpool as a lot of people were, but I think the sequel is set up to make a lot of money here in the near future. And, uh, and I thought, I think days of future past is really, really good, but for some apocalypse was bad enough to just suck the wind out of any interest I would have in a follow up with this new group of X-Men. And I think that it kind of every big X movie seems to end with this tease of like, now finally in the next movie, we're going to get the real X-Men you've been waiting for. And then the next movie just sets it back to zero again. So I'm with you. I'll probably these movies are probably ones that I will see in theaters if knock on wood they come out, which at this point I don't know. But I think Fox is having a lot more success with these spin-off projects like Logan, like Deadpool, that can expand the universe in some smaller, more intimate ways. And I'm surprised they haven't developed more of those movies instead of trying to compete with Marvel toe-to-toe with these big group superhero shows that aren't really uh they just aren't really working. I think I was surprised because um, like I thought New Mutants, especially like we've already gotten a trailer for that. The trailer looked good. Um, and actually like, I thought that looked really good. Like doing a horror movie set in the yeah. X-Men universe was really interesting to me. The Dark Phoenix one, I was more out on just cause like, I didn't think that Sophie Turner's Jean Grey was very good yeah. in Apocalypse. Yeah. 
And like Chris said, we've already seen that on screen. And like, frankly, the X-Men animated series Phoenix Saga <laughs> was incredible. I love, no, I think it was great. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. I like, it feels again, like they're trying to rush all these movies into production. And I mean, both DC and Marvel have done that to some extent too. Marvel's, you know, just had a little bit more success with it. And even they've had to yeah. cancel some stuff. Um, you know, obviously we're, we're never going to get the Inhumans movie. We were promised. Speak for itself. I think Inhumans fever is going to land any day now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we, this has been kind of a downer news segment. Um, I do want to end with news that I thought was really exciting. And I know that Dan Slott's name isn't like, Chris doesn't love Dan Slott's name. Um, but he is bringing back for the first time to Marvel Comics in, I think, four years now. Uh, the Fantastic Four is going to be a real ongoing series again. Um, the Fantastic Four, it was the first superhero comic that Marvel ever made. The series kind of hit a rough patch after Marvel sold the right film rights to them away. And we're all, I think, probably familiar with the movies that came out of that deal. They have gone been from like kind of mediocre cheesy dumb to to just really bad and supposedly marvel killed off the comic book because they didn't really want to support a movie that they didn't have the actual rights to because they can be pretty petty over there at marvel comics but i guess they've gotten over that and they are bringing an actual comic book series back i really like the fantastic four and I, I like dan slot a lot i'm not really caught up on his spider-man series at all but i thought his run on silver surfer was terrific and if he can bring the imagination he brought to silver surfer to the ff then i'm really on board sarah pacelli is not an artist i'm actually super familiar with but she'll be drawing it. i don't know if you guys know her work any better than i do i do i actually really like sarah pacelli she's she did a good bit or she did quite a bit of the uh, miles morales ultimate comic spider-man run that has me excited about this book i think she could uh really uh really capture some uh really cool uh illustrations of the fantastic four and i feel like i i feel like every single week i have to like redefend like re like stabilize <laughs> i don't my, mean to like put you in a my... box i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> no, no no it's totally fine it's totally fine i just like for my opinion on dan slot is I know you guys like love his Silver Surfer run, and I and I've started to dive into it myself, uh, and it's a ton of fun. And yeah, I don't know. I I feel I feel so defensive right now because I'm like, no, <laughs> no I'm sorry. You have defended yourself before. You've made yourself clear before, and I just ignored it. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, no, I think he's I think he's a great writer, and I think he could have a lot of fun. Like he he in his Spider Man run, he's he always like swung for the fence. Let's get him on the show. Let's get him on the show. You tell him to your tell him to his face why you don't like him, Chris. <laughs> see how you like. See how he likes that. I can't express how much of a fear i have that like he will like get a sound bite of this and be like this guy hates you on this podcast and it's like that's not it that's not it at all it has come up in every yeah, single really episode is. i think we right we have to like, how do, how do you guys feel it. about do you guys like fantastic four yeah i personally like my starting point for anybody whenever they ask me like if they're going to dive in the fantastic four is always jonathan hickman's run uh, and I and I would say that to listeners right now, like if you're kind of like, okay, like they've always been a little bit hokey, and you want to die, like you really want to like figure out a good uh, place to start. Jonathan Hickman's uh, Fantastic Four is a really really amazing book, and I, I don't I don't know how you guys feel about it, but it does it doesn't feel like you need to know a lot ahead of time, like. Um, I th yeah, it's it's a really fantastic story, a good science fiction expansion into the Marvel universe. I completely agree. I think that that, that uh, Hickman's Fantastic Four run can hold its head high among any of the great runs of all time. It's just what a great what a great journey. It's it's, it's epic. It's intimate. It gets to the heart of the characters. It's funny, but it's there's a there's a mystery that go, runs through the whole thing. I love that run. For uh, the listeners who maybe haven't read any Fantastic Four, but their only, you know, uh, experience is through film, which obviously, which means they don't have a very high opinion. <laughs> like, you know, Fantastic Four is what you're saying, like used to be a little more cheesy. And I mean, I, I read part of Hickman's Fantastic Four. I love it because he, he definitely, you know, what, what you expect the Fantastic Four to be, like they're super geniuses, you know, and um, you expect like them to speak a certain way and to have like, I don't know, it, it to be nerdy. <laughs> and, and I feel like it's different than maybe what you saw in the Jessica Alba 
Chris Evans and whoever else is in that movie. We do not speak ill of Jessica Alba's name in this house. <laughs> I think you've gotten hit at something that's really hard about the Fantastic Four, Hannah, which is that when you have a team that's at least with four people that at least half of whom are geniuses, it's really, really hard to write. If you're not a genius yourself, it's hard to write somebody who sounds like a genius because they sound smart in a way that most of us just can't write. And that's not, I'm not calling writers stupid. I'm just saying that I couldn't personally write Reed Richards to sound like any more of a genius than I am. Uh, But if Hickman is not a genius, then he at least knows how to write a character who feels believably extremely intelligent in a way that is sort of alienating from the world around him, even people that he cares about. And a lot of the run is about how he tries to overcome some of those, um, some of the barriers that he has because of his intelligence and continue to relate to his wife, to the human torch and the thing who are the other members of the fantastic four. And that makes for a really compelling character drama. In addition to being a a sci-fi superhero sort of space opera epic, um, we need to do an episode on Fantastic Four because we're going to get talking about them a lot here and they're, uh, and, and it's great, but they're not actually the subject of this week's episode. We are here to talk about Catwoman this time. We're talking about Catwoman because Catwoman is getting married for the first time in her 60-year history. Uh, she and Batman are tying the knot. How do we feel about a married Batman on this show? That kind of flies in the face of a lot of what people tend to think associate with Batman as a lonely, dark guy who keeps everybody at arm's length because he's too cool for real relationships. But in Tom King's current run, uh, him and Catwoman are have what seems to be, for the time being, a very stable, honest, uh, emotionally fulfilling relationship. That's a good question. I, I feel like I'm all in on this. Like I've read Limited Catwoman, uh, and most of that has been part of Batman books. Um, and when written well, I feel like the da- dynamic that the two have uh, as, they, as they live out the lives that they do uh, can be really entertaining and give a nice break from this brooding Bruce Wayne that we uh, kind of like always have uh, gotten to see. I also feel like Batman as uh, as a character, like, while he can, while he can like hold his own, I've always enjoyed him uh, and felt like his stories thrive a little more when he has companionship, whether it's like members of the Bat family or uh, a romantic interest or even just Alfred. Like having Batman be having Batman kind of be known by uh, others really allows stories to open up around him and uh, take new approaches to the character that uh, has been around for almost eighty years. Um, so I think with him and uh, Catwoman getting married, I really am interested to kind of see where this dynamic goes and where they take the story from here. And I trust Tom King with almost anything. So if he wants to keep them together for the next 30 years, like I'm all in. I was thinking uh, just, you know, Tom King wrote The Vision, which we talked about in our last podcast. Uh, like he's, he's really good at writing intimate relationships um, between people. And I, I haven't read um, his Batman and, and Rebirth yet. I'm still on uh, Bloom from Scott Snyder. Don't judge. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I like Scott Snyder's Batman run. I think it's good. Oh, no, I love it. I'm just saying I'm really far behind. Um, <laughs> but no, like, I think he's really good at that. So like, at first I was like, whoa, that's a that's a total departure from like, you know, the forever bachelor that, you know, we tend to think of with Batman. Um, but I feel like if anyone could do it, I'm, I mean, you know, I feel like Tom King is the man. Um, that said, I haven't read it. That's just my <laughs> my impression, you know, based upon his his other writing and and you know, like I I'm all for I'm supportive of us kind of shifting gears with these characters and comics. I mean, we're constantly, you know, starting things over in comics, you know, and why not why not do something totally different? It's the perfect platform for something like that. So, Ryan, what do you think? I know you've been doing a Catwoman like binge all day today. <laughs> it's really like it's hard because I think this is a really good story choice. Um, I think Tom King, for all the reasons that Hannah mentioned, is exactly the right person to handle it. Um, I do think Batman is more interesting when he has people he cares about. I think the tricky thing is that, and I guess this was true with Vision too, but it's even more true in this case. I think that. Um, anyone reading who thinks that this is going to end well um, is like fooling themselves. So I think, I feel like it's like this turning point where 
you know, I suppose it was like, you know, if you picked up Daredevil, like at the beginning of Bendis or Brubaker's run back in the early 2000s, and you were like, oh, maybe like things will look up. And then it just was this like, you know, devastating thing. Like, I kind of feel like that's going to happen to Batman, which I think, you know, some really good storytelling will come out of, you know, so I, I'm curious to see what they'll do with it. Um, I've loved King's run on Batman so far. Again, I think he's absolutely the right person to do it. I really love that King is tackling some villains that aren't typically done. And so, you know, it'll just be really interesting to see what they do with this. And like, you know, having done a lot of reading on Catwoman, I think it's interesting that, you know, she's essentially the like the femme fatale of the of the DC uh, or the Batman universe of Gotham City. Um, And she's like the usually the best stuff that has had her in it starring in it has really leaned into that, um, that quantum noir feeling. So like in, in you guys know, like in any crime or noir comics or media, like that any kind of pairing off never ends well. So, um, you know, hopefully this doesn't lead to us discussing like the death of Catwoman in the next like six months. I feel like the genre of superhero romance is sort of a, a complicated one because there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of them and they're always sort of fraught with a will they, won't they between the the Clark Kent and Lois Lane one, which is very famous and they've been married and not been married. And she's known a secret identity and hasn't same with Peter Parker and Mary Jane, same with Steve Rogers and Sharon Carner. I feel like there's, there's a lot of these romances and they're really all over the map. Which ones do you think are actually successful? Like what's a really good superhero romance? That's a good question. I think I like what I think, uh, I feel, I feel like I love the like when both characters can exist like on their own. I love the relationship of Mary Jane and Peter, uh, just as like you know being like part of my favorite character. But I don't know if I would like qualify that as like my favorite comic book relationship. It's tough because Mary Jane has hasn't always really ended independent of Peter as her own character. Although sometimes like she can be written really well sometimes. But she, there's not a series out there, Mary Jane Watson, Agent of Shield, or whatever. Sure, but even like as I, as I'm thinking about this, I, like off the top of my head, I feel like all the female counterparts of these male superheroes kind of get the crap end of the stick a lot of the times. Like even when they're strong, even when they're strong characters like Sue Richards, she still puts up with, like has to put up with so much crap with Reed Richards. And we see like her draw the line a ton, but like, yeah, that's true. Reed Richards is kind of a very bad person. And like, so when I try to think of like a good romantic relationship, I'm, there's not really anything that I'm like, Oh, I want to like, I would love for my relationship to like, look like this. Even one of the great ones, Cyclops and Jean Grey. Jean Grey has only recently been brought back after being dead for like 20 years. And um, she's most famous probably for dying, which isn't a great sign of like, I don't know, women's agency in superhero comics. Yeah, it's hard to think of uh, a character that's really, really Catwoman is is a great one because Catwoman does exist independently of Batman with her own series. Ryan, you referenced uh, Ed Brubaker and Darwin Cook's run in which Batman is a very minor figure. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, you know, that's obviously a very noir take on Catwoman too. But yeah, I mean, I do think that the romances function best with their equals um, at some level. Like I actually like the Reed Richards and Sue Richards relationship for the most part. Um, the thing I don't always like about Mary Jane and Spider-Man is the, you never know if she knows who Spider-Man is and like sometimes they're married and sometimes they're not. And it's really confusing. I think one of the advantages of something like Catwoman and Batman is that, you know, it's been kind of known that they know each other's secret identities um, and that's been pretty consistent with a few few tweaks here and there. But I think giving them both that intimate knowledge of the other person um, has really made that uh, made that successful. Um, I was going to say the only other one that I think comes to mind immediately is Cyclops and Emma Frost, where you have a similarly kind of anti-hero, you know, dating the head of the X-Men in those. Like, and I, I actually think Cyclops relationship with Emma Frost is way more interesting than his with Jean Grey. No, I totally agree with that. I was kind of sad when that ended up falling apart 
like when they built Utopia and all that. Like it, it yeah. was, it was really good. It was, it was a really good run. It was, it was fun to like, kind of like watch. It was fun to watch the villain slash antihero of Emma Frost kind of like start leaning in more towards uh, being a true hero and being a part of the X Men and being a leader of the X Men um, alongside alongside the X Men Golden Boy. Um, so yeah, like I, I, I definitely agree. I, I, I love what they were able to develop with Emma Frost uh, alongside Cyclops. I think that one thing that has helped some of these stories is the ones that have a really definitive end to them. Like say with Gwen Stacy, who died, spoilers for 1967 or so. Um, but Gwen's death has cast a shadow over the whole Spider-Man story of being the one person that Spider-Man couldn't save. And that's even in some stories haunted his relationship with Mary Jane. There was that really wonderful uh, Spider-Man blue story uh, where he and Mary Jane had to reckon with the fact that that uh, Gwen was his first love. And how do you do that? Not just as a superhero, but as a couple, when you know there's somebody else out there that the person you're with shared a very deep and, and intimate relationship with. How does your own relationship move on with them? Which is, uh, it's really special when superhero stories can delve into those very human emotions with a lot of poignance, which which that one did. But obviously a lot more of these stories end up dealing with Jean Grey being consumed by an otherworldly Phoenix force that that forces her to sacrifice herself, which isn't as relatable, but still was a, it's a pretty good story outside of the movies. It's a pretty good story, which does bring us a little bit to how Catwoman has been developed as her own character. And her story has not really had an end. In fact, it's changed a lot of times. That's something we're going to talk about a little bit now. In Batman's earliest days, villains weren't considered worthy of anything so dimensional as a motivation or even anything approaching a personality. They rarely even had civilian names. It was generally understood at the time that any supervillain who showed up in a comic book would be sent off to jail for good by the end of the story, so there was no sense in getting to know much about their story. At first, the character who would come to be known as Catwoman was little different. Batman creators Bill Finger and Bob Kane said they wanted to create a sexy femme fatale who would appeal to the teen boys who read their comics while also hopefully lassoing in a few female readers, thus making Catwoman an early example of a cynical paradox that would haunt superhero comics for years to come. The female character who is supposed to serve as both an emblem of female empowerment and a nice piece of ass. Modeling her appearance after Hollywood bombshell and Howard Hughes' muse, Jean Harlow, the cat, as she was known at first, didn't have a skin-tight suit that would be her future trademark. However, she was a few shades more morally ambiguous than other members of the Dark Knight's rogues gallery. She was not a murderer or even, in the eyes of her creators, as unforgivably evil as characters like the Joker and Penguin. She became a recurring character, sometimes an adversary, sometimes an ally, and most intriguingly, sometimes somewhere in the middle. She also received a citizen alias, Selena Kyle. Kane and Finger started to think of her as a friendly foe. Bob Kane would later give a kind of a long quote uh, about how he felt about her. And I'm going to read the whole thing because even though it's long, it gives some important context to her creation. Bob Kane said, and I quote, I felt that women were feline creatures and men were more like dogs. While dogs are faithful and friendly, cats are cool, detached, and unreliable. I felt much warmer with dogs around me. Cats are hard to understand as women are. Men feel more sure of themselves with a male friend than a woman. You always need to keep women at arm's length. We don't want anyone taking over our souls, and women have a habit of doing that. So there's a love-resentment thing with women. I guess women will feel that I'm being chauvinistic to speak this way, but I do feel that I've had better relationships with male friends than women. With women, once the romance is over, somehow they never remain my friends, end quote. We'll leave you to psychoanalyze everything going on there in your own time, but suffice to say, for many years, Batman would share his creator's terror of any sort of real connection with any woman, and Catwoman in particular. Her popularity waned, largely thanks to a government crackdown on what comics were and weren't allowed to publish in the 1950s, but her star rose considerably in the 1960s thanks to her portrayal in the briefly but spectacularly popular Batman TV show. She was portrayed by Julie Newmar in the first two seasons and legendary performer and activist Eartha Kitt in the third. 
The TV show portrayed her as a sex siren and occasional subject of Bruce Wayne's affection, but still not a terribly complicated moral figure. The definitive version of Catwoman wouldn't really come until Frank Miller and David Mazzuchelli's Batman Year One in 1987, which depicted a Selina Kyle who made ends meet as a sex worker. If you've heard our previous episodes about Frank Miller, this will come as no surprise. She had a knack for martial arts, a young protege, and a sense of kinship with the new masked crime fighter swinging around Gotham's rooftops. Her storyline wasn't a significant part of Year One, but its legacy is huge. Spinoffs from the story, like Jeff Loeb's The Long Halloween and Dark Victory, would establish Selina as a master burglar, a worthy physical match for Batman, too sympathetic to ever really fit in with Batman's most loathsome villains, but too criminal to escape his sense of justice. Even if she felt her crimes were justified, and some stories did imply that she only stole from people who she felt deserved it, like a catsuit Robin Hood, Batman's sense of justice wasn't willing to play such games. In 1992, Catwoman found another definitive depiction in Tim Burton's Batman Returns, where Michelle Pfeiffer immortalized her as a slinky, psychologically unstable crook who nevertheless shares a romantic bond with Bruce Wayne. The movie's success led to her first ongoing series, which was popular even if it wasn't always that good. And in 2001, famed comic book artist Darwin Cook teamed up with a then-up-and-coming comic book writer named Ed Brubaker, who would soon go on to become famous as the writer of Captain America's Winter Soldier storyline. They created a pulpy, noir-infused Catwoman story that cast her as a more honest figure, a woman who broke the laws in pursuit of higher justice, and if that towed the line of Batman's moral code, so be it. Now, Catwoman's status is changing again. In Tom King's ongoing Batman series, her and Bruce Wayne are preparing to tie the knot, answering, at least for now, one of pop culture's most nettlesome will-they-won't-they's. Indeed, in the current series, Batman and Catwoman enjoy what certainly appears to be a deeply satisfying and honest relationship, something very new for both of these characters in their nearly 80-year history. A Batman with a fulfilling personal romantic life is a far cry from the Batman most of us were raised with, but if it was ever going to be anyone, it was going to be Catwoman. And as to whether or not this current incarnation of Catwoman is here to stay, well, time will tell. Cats have a lot of lives. So when you guys think about Catwoman, do you think of her as a Batman villain or as a Batman ally or somewhere in between? What's your go-to characterization? Typically, I like lean more towards her being an ally, or at least like that, like falling in that. Uh, I never like see her as a true villain, and I don't think I ever have outside of like even in the like um, Tim Burton version of her. Like while that's still like very vague, like I feel like I might have, as child Chris, like might have seen her as a villain in that, <laughs> uh, just because like the movie creeped me out. Um, <laughs> but like I feel like I do see her more on the, the side of good than bad but that's also a lack of exposure of her like full character arc over the years she's been drawn as a as a pretty straightforward villain i think in things like um like the long halloween she was pretty unambiguously a villain in that in the 1960s tv show she was running around with the rest of the villains that isn't necessarily canon but it was her most prominent depiction for a long time and I think even like like we talked about, like the scripted segment talked about, she was always created with the idea that there might be, she could be a little more than just a villain. Uh, but I think she's definitely at her least interesting when she's drawn as just a villain. Although the animated TV series usually had her ending up as a bad guy, even if she would flirt with Batman a little bit on the side. I think that's what like put her in the anti-hero like, realm for me. Like there was always just like some like, there was always some goodness behind it, but I mean, like I can also understand like how Batman never saw it that way. <laughs> what is an anti-hero? I feel like it's a word that a lot of us use and throw around, but it's not a, I don't know. There's a great definite, I don't know the definition of anti-hero is at all other than a hero who's just also a, totally a badass. <laughs> I mean, I think that um, there's also a, you know, she's kind of the classic uh, foil for Batman because she's like she's like the inverse of Batman where Batman will you know essentially everything he does is breaking the law but 
we have kind of learned to overlook that because he also like works with the law and you know he has this kind of strict moral code that he sticks to that's sort of comfortable with the laws that we're used to and things like that whereas selena kyla's Catwoman also has a moral code but it's a lot looser with the laws we have so i, I think a lot of times in a literary sense like a foil can be it's someone who is there and, and i think batman is her foil then is is it someone who's there to kind of emphasize the traits missing in each other so there's the so catwoman i think emphasizes that batman's breaking the law but maybe doesn't go far enough and can't you know can't do everything or stop everything that he wants to or be as successful as he wants to whereas batman kind of shows some of the moral bankruptcy um in catwoman's decision making but i think both of them have kind of a moral compass so you know i don't know if like anti-hero is necessarily like the right choice because it you know i think again anti-hero you're right gets thrown around a ton because we're, that's kind of the golden age of television we're living in but like i see her as much more of a like good-hearted person than i would like walter white or uh don draper or you know tony soprano or some of the other people that are kind of the classic tv anti-heroes it seems like she's just got a slightly like she has different moral boundaries than Batman, but a lot of times they're after some of the same things. I tend to think that anti-hero label is something we just slap on someone when they like exist in that gray area. And it's, you know, I think a lot of different characters in comics and, you know, movies, various forms of media, we, we put them in that category because they're neither totally good and they're, they're totally bad. So I was thinking about, uh, video games and so my husband's like majorly into them and I hear him spouting off these things like oh like I always love to be you know uh, chaotic neutral <laughs> or so I was like I feel like this we could use this same system for for Catwoman and other anti-heroines so like I was I was thinking about it and I'm curious about what you guys have to say I, I was thinking lawful neutral but that might be too too law-abiding for a Catwoman. Oh, see, I think she's chaotic good. Chaotic good. You think so? Well, I was going to say chaotic yeah. neutral. Oh. See, chaotic neutral was my first it, like it, like inclination. And I, I do think that like for Catwoman, her initial reaction is like look out for number one. Yeah. Which is herself yeah. and her own interests. And then I feel like her MO is kind of like, no, no, Batman, I'm not going to commit to this or, you know, I'm not going to show up when you need me. But then like she always says that, but then she does. She like she comes and she helps him or or something. So I, I feel like that to me is a little more uh, lawful neutral. But, you know, it's all in the eye of the beholder. In marriage, they will become one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I, I feel like I don't know all the distinctions enough to because law, there's lawful good. Neutral good, chaotic good, lawful neutral across the world, and then lawful evil, neutral evil, chaotic evil. And I'm not even sure where Batman would fall on that because he's not lawful good unless he's abiding by his own law, I suppose. Does that count? I'm so lost in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, it's like a meme. It's like, it's like a, a meme that, I, that I'm sure is based on some sort of sociology that I'm not aware of. But there's like an X and Y axis. You know what? I'm not going to explain it to you. This is not that kind of podcast. It's a Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, it thing. is. Yeah, oh. yeah. That's where it came from. Is like that that world of RPGs where you would be able to define, you know, who what your character's uh, like persona was based on this stuff. It's a classification system, and I yeah. Actually, come on, guys, get into get <laughs> I into. I wasn't D &D. allowed to play D and D when I was a kid, so oh. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you mean castles and cauldrons? <laughs> so I actually think that I think Batman would be chaotic good. I think lawful neutral for Selena Kyle. And the meme that I just Googled right now to give me a suggestion, Donald Trump is chaotic good. And I feel like... Oh, why'd maybe, you have to bring that up? <laughs> maybe, I'm, maybe I'm working with the wrong sort of meme system right now. There's also one in which Neo is chaotic good. So I guess that could work as well. And I'm sure I'm chaotic good in, on some days, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's, <laughs> let's before I get too deep, well, this, this could definitely come back. I want to know how you guys feel about Catwoman's various incarnations in the movies. There are three major ones in the movies. And then if you throw in the TV shows from 1960s TV show, the animated series, 
Um, and then I, I think there's even been some in the, some of the more recent DC animated movies, but the really big ones we're working with are Michelle Pfeiffer, Halle Berry, and Anne Hathaway. Well, I think we like re- fully remove Halle Berry, right? We're all on the same page of her being the best Catwoman. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys okay? Have you guys seen Catwoman with Halle Berry? Yes, no, I, have. I never saw a the movie. Time ago, no. and one time. Yeah, I, I have too. I want to know what it's like. I have no idea what it's about. It is genuinely and truly one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> Mostly because it's like, it's not quite bad enough to be fun. Yeah. It's just like atrocious yeah. in every Sharon way. Sharon Stone's villain was like, whoa, <laughs> was bad. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Is it actually Catwoman? Like, is it based, like, does is it understood this exists in like the Batman Gotham universe? It's been a while since I've seen it too. I think it's set in Gotham City, but like... It's not. It doesn't really have anything to do with Bat- Batman. Um, they definitely lean into like the mythology, which Batman Returns dabbled a little into, where like she has cat powers and you know has nine lives and um, that kind of stuff. So it leans pretty heavily into that. But I don't remember. I don't think it has any ties to like the Bat universe besides that. That was a something that Tim Burton added, which was it was a different time for comic book movies because I feel like giving her some vague cat powers like he did would not go over well with fans today because she's so much more of a like a basic street vigilante with no actual uh, powers. But that was a big. I mean, her Catwoman is very iconic. People re- like it's very well remembered. I think remembered pretty fondly by pop culture. I remember it fondly. What Michelle Pfeiffer's yeah. Catwoman? Man, <laughs> I think that there are just little pieces of that movie that have stuck with me throughout the throughout the years. And like, I'm like, I'm tempted to ask for clarify like clarifying questions because like at one point, like, do cats just like start biting at her? Like she falls yeah, from they, they, they like lick her, her. like they oh. lick her wounds, yeah. But she's like, she just fell out of a window, right? Yeah. Or was thrown out of she it? Was she was thrown out of I it. think she was like thrown out of a window and she fall and then like cats kind of surround her and they <laughs> imbue her with their cat essence. Their healing powers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> From their saliva. And then, she, and then she's Catwoman. She it's makes so a costume. It, it's simple, Chris. Tale is all this time. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I think I think like the most memorable thing is the actual costume, yeah, right? Yeah. Like like that that has like kind of transcended her in my mind. Like that character in my mind is like that is that is the definitive like Catwoman costume because it was just something from my childhood. But what well, I think they really leaned into because at the time, like you know, in the comics, Catwoman was still like a dominatrix in a lot of her back like backstory. They really leaned into that, like with a latex suit and like the very visible stitching, um, you know, plus it would still be 10 years before we realized that like Tim Burton just sort of uses the same props in every movie where it's like, oh, look at that visible stitching. It's a Tim Burton movie. Like that's kind of what they were going off of, too. It wasn't I feel like she wasn't quite as much of a she'd certainly been positioned as a much more kind of like sex pot figure um, in that era than she would be later now like you said kind of the default version of catwoman is much more she's a cat burglar and like super connected with underworld crime and it's much more of a crime figure as opposed to this sort of super villain um with powers i uh, and that was something that anne hathaway brought to the foreign batman returns and or no batman returns <laughs> i don't think so and <laughs> in dark knight rises i feel like when that was announced that was people were extremely skeptical people are always skeptical of anne hathaway for some reason that i can't quite figure out because i think she's largely a really great actor but she ended up being one of the best parts about that movie. I will speak into this for a moment. Okay. Um, uh, oh, man. So oh, wow. <laughs> I, no, no. I, I'm one of those people who really likes Anne Hathaway. I know there's like this like very large population of people who like despise her. I don't understand it. It's a weird phenomenon. Anyway. I think she's great. I think, I think she's, she's great. great. Anyway, um, I think that people were really skeptical of it like when it was announced because – this is a criticism that Christopher Nolan, who directed the movies, has received before about like not being able to write romance very well, and he had cut, he had fumbled with Maggie Gyllenhaal in The Dark Knight, like majorly. Like there was no chemistry between uh, Christian Bale and Maggie Gyllenhaal, and you know, still not too much sizzle in Batman Returns with Katie Holmes. Um, so I think that when they announced Anne Hathaway. Like, I think people were already kind of like, 
assuming another miscast, if you will, like we saw in The Dark Knight. I think that's why people were a little like jumpy about it. Less to do with like her skills as an actress. But she like she was really, really spectacular, even if <laughs> I feel like there was chemistry between her and Christian Bale almost entirely because of Anne Hathaway. I don't know how much Bale's performance had to do with that, but she was just electric on screen and they did a great job uh, with her, as just like they did with, with Joker and Batman, of making her shtick seem much more believable than it had any right to be in giving a lot of... Uh, callbacks to the character without ever quite leaving the more grounded vision he had for those movies. It was really good. Even if I will always maintain that the final shot kind of gives away the mystery in a way that I wish they had left a little more ambiguous. Um, but I think that, I think that Michelle Pfeiffer is probably the most iconic depiction of Catwoman and will probably be the one that it's the one that has lasted in pop culture longest, but Anne Hathaway's is very, very good. Uh, and Halle Berry's man, that like tanked her career for a long time. <laughs> yeah. She was a big deal in Hollywood. And then she started in Catwoman and now she's just kind of another actor. And I would actually say that even more than Anne Hathaway, I feel like Eartha Kitt, her portrayal of, of Catwoman, like back in the, you know, in the original series with Adam West, you know, with the boom Biff Pow era. I feel like Eartha Kitt's portrayal of Catwoman has kind of, you know, gone a lot in yeah. pop culture too, just in the campiness of it. Because I feel like that's that's also what Michelle Pfeiffer was tapping into is, and that's, you know, what Tim Burton was doing in kind of his own way. It was just tapping into how campy Batman is um, or can be, you know, obviously not as much as some other places, but sometimes we, uh, at least I tend to overlook that whole old original Batman series um but i feel like it still has some staying power in what it kind of lent to that interpretation of batman i think it, it harkens back to something that you were talking about earlier chris and, and you too hannah about how as much as people want batman to be this really dark loner he really is at his best his stories are at their best when he's when he has a, a community around right? when he has that bat family robin nightwing catwoman alfred all you know throw, bat girl throw as many of them in there as you want to but even if he's sort of a, a brooding distant father figure that being a father figure is an important part of his characterization and i think tom king by leaning into that and giving making the robins there's like three of them now all the Robins, sort of the sons, the three brothers of the Bat family, and making Catwoman both the the wife and sort of a maternal figure, that could really do wonders for the mythology. And like we've all said, I'm just honestly on board for anything Tom King does at this point. Uh, it's an exciting time for Batman fans. Yeah, and I think we can all just take the ultimate lesson away that we are all better with community. <laughs> yeah. Good job. Can we Good wrap job. it up on that note? Yeah. Before I start crying? <laughs> This podcast is a lot better with community. It's a lot better. It's Chris, yeah. you're usually sitting here next to me. It's a lot better when you are, buddy. Oh man, I miss you. Oh, I miss you. Miss you too. I just I just saw you 12 minutes ago, but it's fine. I know, but it's been a long, been a long 20 minutes. I do want to put another plug in for uh, the Ed Brubaker written run of the Darwin Cook uh, illustrated run of Catwoman from the early 2000s. Um, it's definitely like you can see Ed Brubaker starting to flex his crime writing muscle um, that like since he's gone on to do a ton of great stuff with image and um, like especially the criminal series but that like the Catwoman series is just amazing so if you can get that yeah. uh, I would highly recommend it. I'll also say that I tried getting that on Comixology and I don't think it was available so I bought it on Amazon. I tried looking for it. And I couldn't find it. So just ignore what I said. And, but you still should buy the physical copy at your local comic book store. Yes. And yes. it's illustrated by Darwin cook. And I, I, told you guys earlier over text that Darwin Cook is on my Mount Rushmore of superhero comics artists. I, I really love his work, which is very, has a really vintage throwback feel. Uh, the animated series, the Batman, the animated series, Justice League animated series are really indebted to his work. He passed away recently, but he left behind just a ton of really great comics, mostly for DC. New Frontier was a big one of his. He did a, a short run called Trinity. Uh, but his work with Ed Brubaker on Catwoman is probably as good as his series ever got. Yeah, and he wrote he wrote like a prequel. Yeah, like yeah, that's right. Starring Catwoman, so he wrote and illustrated it. And I mean, if you've ever read, um, and this is getting way off the rails now, but if you've read um, 
like his hunter oh, comics. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, like Parker the Hunter, which he wrote for IDW, and those are just straight crime. The Richard Stark's Parker the Hunter, like it feels like the Selena Kyle series was a precursor to that, where he was kind of playing with the that tone and that style of illustration. So it's just like it's just super cool to me to see like two people who've gone on to write and illustrate like some of the best crime comics in the world um really starting to like starting to do that in the context of a of a superhero comic um and and catwoman is just like the perfect place to do it so it gets into just a lot of cool cool stuff like cool relationships that she has like batman's in it a little bit um but then it really gets into kind of the the underworld of gotham city that you don't get to see all that often in batman comics and um, you know, how there are all these people just like living under the surface that aren't necessarily these super villains. I'll make sure that we uh, link to that comic and a few of the other ones that we've talked about in the show notes here. I try to always do that for anybody who actually goes in and reads the show notes. I work super hard. I don't work that hard on them, but I do put links to the things that we talk about. And the, so they're worth, if you hear about a comic that sounds interesting to you, you can find a link to the Comixology uh, Amazon or Marvel link in there that'll let you purchase it. And we don't get any kickback from any of these places for talking about it we're just fans and with that these fans will wrap it up thanks for listening to cape town guys thanks you to everybody over at cm studios uh chad snavely and jesse montagna do a great job over there of making sure that we sound good and we'll be back in two weeks we're getting ready for some infinity war stuff so stay tuned for who we're talking about next and with that, I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Hannah Mazel. I'm Chris Youngblood. I'm Ryan Ham. No need for thanks, citizens. We'll see you next time. <laughs>